I wonder if you were to answer the question, what is God like, and how you picture him, uh, as you began to go through that explanation, maybe speaking to a friend or your child, at what point in your explanation would you say that God is joyful? You know, I think a lot of times we consider both the holiness of God as well as even you know, the fatherhood of God, his power, his might, and yes, his grace. But I wonder how often we think about God's joy. I mean, is God stern and unapproachable? Is he gregarious and warm? Is he jolly, for lack of not being uh, too uh, uh, loose with that language? Well, this morning I want us to see as we continue in our look at the fruit of the Spirit, the first, the God of joy. You remember we began our discussion on the fruit of the Spirit some weeks ago, uh, and we mentioned in the first sermon, uh, which is not recorded, so you can't go back and check me on this, uh, a few premises that are leading uh, us in this study of the fruit of the Spirit that I want to remind us of this morning since it's been a few weeks. The first is that the fruit Paul speaks of is just that. It is fruit as opposed to deeds. The Spirit, as we, were, uh, spo- uh, that we, as we considered, is the source of all of these virtues that are listed here in Paul's exhortation. That the fruit uh, that uh, we see here is born by the power of the Spirit in the life of the believer. But the second thing that we saw is that the Spirit is also the content of the fruit in our lives. That what the fruit of the Spirit displays is the very character of the Spirit himself, the Spirit of the risen Christ who lives in us. That same Spirit, as we spoke of, that descended upon the Son at his baptism has been poured out on us, and so the fruit that you and I bear as Christians will be the very fruit of Jesus himself as the Spirit of Christ is at work in us. You'll remember a few weeks back that we said to understand love we must first understand God's love. That if we're going to understand the fruit of the Spirit as it speaks of the the, the characteristic of love, it has to be defined by the very nature of the love of God, not on any other definition that we might use culturally. And we saw that it was a love not based on our performance or our perfection uh, or, or our potential or our winsomeness or our beauty. It wasn't based on anything in us at all, but rather God set his love on us simply because he desired to. It's love based on his own will without condition, a love for enemies and users, for people who don't get it the first time or even the 77th time. And that is the love that the Spirit is working in us as believers even now. The love of God, I mean, that is a topic we have surely heard of before, hopefully one that we like. I like it. (laughs) But the joy of God, what about that? I mean, does that even sound uh, normal to you? Doesn't that come off as a little weird to think of God having his own joy? The Bible shows us that God is not merely a God who gives joy, But he is the God of joy, a God who possesses in himself joy. It's part of his very nature. It's a joy that exists apart from and before the creation of the world. It's not just that he rejoices over creation and that's where he, you know, manifests his joy. He had joy resident within himself by his own nature before he made one thing. And in fact, 
Creation really is just an evidence, if you will, or an overflow of that joy. Creation is not necessary. God doesn't need it to become who he is. He wasn't missing something and therefore he created the world. He created simply because he wanted to. He delights in his creation. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit delighted in one another from all eternity. But you have to consider the clearest, of course, expression of God's joy as seen in Jesus, if you're going to understand it at all. I mean, Jesus taught us, did he not, that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so if you want to understand God, the, the way that we come to understand him most readily is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There the Father is on display. There the Spirit's work through the Son is being shown forth to the world. God in flesh, tabernacled in our very midst. And while odd, the Bible doesn't hide the idea of the joy of Jesus from us. It may not be the first thing we think of, but this isn't something that's just on the back pages of Scripture that you have to go searching for so that you can get through a series on the fruit of the Spirit. Um, it really is in the Bible. It's not just that he would bring great joy by his saving work, which surely he does, but that he came as one full of joy in order to give man the fullness of joy. I mean, you know these scriptures, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you so that your joy may be full. Or even again in John 17, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Notice it was Jesus' own joy, his own possession that he was coming to share with mankind as he came in his saving work. So what do we know of Christ's joy? We've already mentioned his joy was surely with his, was in his Father before time began, as the psalmist says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And surely the Son possessed that, even as the Proverbs allude to. His coming surely sparked good news of great joy for all peoples, but it also sparked joy in God himself. Our God, according to Scripture, enjoys and delights in saving sinners. It brings him great joy. I mean, you see throughout the parables, especially in Luke and his lost parables, the parable of the lost sheep, where the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. And it says when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders and comes home rejoicing. And it doesn't end there. It says when he gets home, he calls all of his neighbors around and all of his friends and he says, you have to rejoice with me, because that which was lost has been found. And Jesus concludes that parable saying, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Same thing happens with the lost coin. When the woman calls together her friends after she finds the coin that had been missing, and she calls them to rejoice again with me, and Jesus says, there will be more joy before the angels of God in heaven. And finally, that most famous of parables, the parable of the prodigal, where the father at the end of that story runs 
embracing his lost son, whom he was looking for day after day, and once embracing him, calls for a great celebration. He makes everyone join with him in his own joy over the recovery of one who had been distant. Even the text we read this morning in Zephaniah, hopefully you heard the language. I'm going to read it from the AS, uh, uh, American Standard, uh, mainly because it, it really does uh, kind of uh, give us a literal reading of the words there. It says, Jehovah thy God is in the midst of thee, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. In the midst of this great text of judgment, God says, there's going to come a day when I come back and I save you. And it begins by saying, and you will be so joyful when God comes to save. But it ends with God himself doing all of the rejoicing, delighted in the saving of sinners. We read in the Psalms, oh, how happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. But we could also say, oh, how happy is the God who forgives sinners. It's all over Scripture. You cannot miss the delight of God and the redemption of man. It even goes on to tell us, even that it seems so foreign to us in the way that God is presented oftentimes, that God takes no morbid pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's not his first impulse. And Jesus is the God of joy put on display for us in his ministry towards sinners. But you will also notice Jesus is the man of joy. As the God-man, he also shows us what it looks like to be a true man experiencing true joy in this life. The scriptures tell us that he experienced this joy because he was an obedient son. Hebrews tells us in its first chapter, because he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. Notice, he was anointed with the oil of gladness above any of his brethren. And again, that's not always the way that we picture Christ, but it says because he hated what was wrong and loved what was right, he was given joy more than any other man in the history of the world, above all of his brethren. Which means, and I, and I want you to hear this, that Jesus is the most joyful human being that ever lived. Now that may not be on the front pages of Scripture. Chesterton has a whole theory on it if you want to read it. But the Scripture does tell us he was anointed with the oil of gladness above all. In Donald McLeod's work on the person of Christ, uh, he makes a great point when he says, you know, we don't see in the pages of Scripture, we don't get a lot of descriptions of, of Jesus laughing or, or smiling. Uh, and we often maybe imagine him as stern and joyless as we do see some of those scenes of his anger and his rebuke of those who considered themselves upright when they weren't. And oftentimes when we think of the holy Jesus, we think of, of holiness uh, often being equated with joylessness. You know, if you're really holy, you know, you also need to be really grumpy is uh, oftentimes how it comes into our, our psyche. But notice with me, hear me. McLeod says, a joyless life would be a sinful life. I mean, if, if the Bible commands us, rejoice always, be content in all things, and says that the fruit of the Spirit is joy, would Jesus have lacked these things in his own life and still been pleasing 
before the face of the Father. Luke tells us in chapter 10 that he was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. And as we've already read in John 15, he says that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. So the Bible presents to us, if we're going to understand again the fruit of the Spirit, we must understand it from God's side. It presents to us a God who is full of joy and then wants to work that particular fruit in the lives of those that he's remaking into the image of his own son. And so the next thing I want us to see is the joy of the Spirit in us. Christ makes plain that he wants to share that joy with you. In fact, he came that your joy may be full. That the self-same joy that he has, he promises, you will partake of. Listen to what the epistles teach us. And you became imitators of us, and notice, and of the Lord, of Jesus himself. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The same joy that Luke quotes in chapter 10. Paul says, you imitated Jesus by having the joy of the Holy Spirit. Or as the Apostle Peter teaches us, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, full of glory. Be joyful always. That is our calling. It's the fruit of the Spirit in us. So do it. <laughs> I mean, it's easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, uh, if you haven't noticed, life's hard. <laughs> and joy at times seems pretty hard to come by, especially if you're trying to gin it up. It's not something you can fake if you haven't noticed. I mean, you can learn how to win friends and influence people and smile a lot, but that's not quite the same thing as having joy resident within you. I mean, how can this be our calling when this world that we live in is full of heartache? I mean, we have the realities of sin. I mean, our own sin that's always with us and the sins that people have committed against us. Uh, our failures, just the normal trials of life, broken bodies, Broken minds, broken wills, broken relationships, all leading to broken hearts. I mean, everything is broken, as Dylan said, and if it's not broken now, it's breaking, according to Scripture. So how does joy happen there? I mean, is this where we kind of play the Christian, the Christian uh, Pollyanna glad game? Uh, where we pretend things are good even when they're not, and we put on a happy face, maybe practice some wish fulfillment, power of positive thinking, you know, just be optimists in spite of all that's before us, uh, and somehow the negative will magically just disappear, or maybe we can get enough medication to pretend it's not around. I mean, is this the don't worry, be happy, let go, and let God sort of Christianity that often gets peddled to us in this current age? Well, I want us to see in concluding, don't get too excited, the conclusion's longer than the beginning, but I want us to see the joy of Jesus in suffering. You see, we are being given by the Spirit the very joy of Christ, as has been mentioned. But if we look at the life of Christ, it's not as if he had, you know, some happy-go-lucky existence 
free from all trial and just somehow blessed beyond all measure, at least by the worldly standards that we often measure things by. He didn't have the easiest go of it. So how does joy work? I mean, how does it work for him? And then by consequence, how does it work for us? As the psalmist said, our Savior was anointed with the oil of gladness above his brethren. That is true. But as Isaiah teaches us, he was also a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was the suffering servant par excellence. The Bible isn't ignorant of the tension that it's presenting to you. This tension to rejoice always, uh, when a lot of times the life that's handed to us uh, doesn't look like something that can be delighted in. I mean, in fact, the Bible doesn't even try to hide it. It doesn't pretend only clear days and sunshine once you believe in Jesus Christ. It promises something quite the contrary, even if we may be ignoring it. In fact, the very narrative in John that places joy squarely before us takes place at one of the most brutal moments in all of Jesus' ministry. As you go through chapters 15 to 17, where he brings up this theme time and time again, my joy in you, that your joy may be full, it takes place immediately on the heels of Judas betraying him, and right as he comes to the garden to pray to his father on behalf of his disciples, knowing what lies before him at the cross. And still he is saying the words, give them my joy, that their joy may be full. How can we say that Jesus is the most joyful man who ever lived, and at the same time he was the man of sorrows? I mean, can those things really live together? Because uh, whether you know it or not, that's the tension you're living in right now. I and mean, that's what the Bible is presenting to you, and hopefully you've experienced it at some, in some measure by, by your own uh, just uh, experiential realities. It's here that we begin to see that joy differs from our normal way of thinking of it. Joy is not what we often consider, you know, just mere happiness. Uh, happiness is generally defined uh, in our lives by outward circumstances and experiences. You know, if things are going well, then we're happy. But clearly, joy can't be like that because Christ is about to be crucified and still possesses the same joy that he possessed before the world began. If our ex ex uh, outward circumstances change according to that happiness... Of course, our happiness changes. I mean, maybe you've experienced that before. Yeah. I mean, even on vacation, happiness doesn't always <laughs> pop out, especially when you're camping, but we won't get into that now. As Brian Spooner writes, If I have piles of money in the bank, then I will be happy. If I have a fancy car, then I'll feel secure. If I'm famous, then I will be glamorous and happy. If I can just get hold of whatever it is, then I will finally be happy. The problem is that getting hold of something is only the first half of it. Once we get hold of anything, then we must keep it. Keeping hold of something fleeting, that is difficult indeed. And notice in this age, everything is fleeting. So our happiness can't be, or our joy can't be rooted in things in this life that are subject to the change of circumstances or the blowing of whatever cultural wind. I mean, Chesterton saw this difference and spoke of it this way. Modern men have utterly lost the joy of life. 
They have to put up with the miserable substitute of the joys of life. And even these things they seem less and less able to enjoy. And so joy is not mere happiness. And we know that because the Bible teaches that joy can remain, must remain, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of real sorrow and grief. Somehow joy is still available, even when happiness itself is snuffed out, even in the darkest hour. The Bible isn't saying there are joyful times and there are hard times. But oddly says, be joyful in all manner of times. And not all seasons of life are created equal. I mean, a lot of times where I'm just going through a season. You know, some of those seasons seem to just last until you die, if you haven't noticed. Uh, you know, chronic disease is hardly a season. A spouse with a mental health issue is hardly a season. Or the loss of a child isn't something that just goes away with time. I mean, talk of seasons doesn't quite fit into this lifelong reality of suffering. And yet we still hear the Scripture's call to us in Christ. Notice what Paul says again. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Or again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. How is that possible? Well, since it's Jesus' joy we're receiving by the Spirit, it is to Jesus we must look to understand how one can be joyful in the midst of the sufferings of this age. Notice, for Christ, his joy is rooted in his good Father and the good future that he's held before him. It's rooted in the goodness of God and the promise of the future that is set before him. That God in his kindness is working a good end for his son. I mean, Isaiah 53, in the midst of one of the most agonizing texts concerning the suffering of our Savior, we read these words. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, notice, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and he will be satisfied. So notice, in the midst of this suffering, there's something that's held before him. And that thing that's held before him is so good and so worthwhile. And it's based on such good promises that in the midst of the anguish, there's still this underpinning of joy that can carry him not only through, but in one sense, help him to go to these horrible ends in order to receive this good reward. Or again, in Hebrews 12, 2, this verse that you all know, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. You see, a joy and an outcome that God promises to us a good word from God of a good end for his people. A knowledge of a good God who keeps and sustains and at last prospers his children. 
That is the only way to have joy in the midst of life's changing scenes. Life that is full of happiness and full of pain can be a life that is always undergirded by joy if we know the future that is held out for us in the promise of God through the gospel. This undergirding knowledge that God is good and his end for us is good grants joy, yea, even permits joy in the midst of heartbreak. And I'm sure you've experienced at one other level or another. When life hands you something that cannot be changed, as you stand at the side of the grave, as you hold the hand of the dying, there has to be something bigger, more overarching, something more solid, something that is holding you fast, that can get you through that moment, that says, this is not it. This isn't the last word. And it's that promise of God through the broken body of his son that gives a joy that outlasts death. You see, God promises to you that he will wipe every tear from your eye. That all things, even now, every bent and bruising thing in your life is working together for your ultimate good and salvation. Even your own wretched failures that keep you up at night. The hard thing, the bad thing, that ugly thing won't have the last word over your life. Knowing that, that knowledge of God, that knowledge of his ends allows joy now before those ends are seen. Tolkien got this very well and I can't get into all he says on it, but I do want to say this. He's speaking of fairy tales, but what he means by that ultimately is the gospel. Can't explain that either. But he says this, so I'm going to dub it for you. The gospel does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. See, the possibility of these is necessary to the very joy of deliverance. It denies, instead, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal and final defeat. Giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, a joy beyond the walls of this world as poignant as grief. You see, sorrow in this age, according to Scripture, will be turned to joy. Death to resurrection, ashes to beauty. And that gives us, brothers and sisters, permission to rejoice now. We don't have to wait to inherit those things, to experience the joy of those things in our present life. It was true for Christ, and it is true for us. As Chesterton writes, for the Christian, joy is the central feature of life and sorrow is peripheral. I'm going to repeat that for you so that you get your head straight. For the Christian, joy is the central feature of life and sorrow is the peripheral. Because the fundamental questions of life are answered. And the peripheral ones are relatively unanswered. But for the anti-theist, sorrow is central and joy peripheral because only the peripheral questions are answered and the central ones remain wholly unanswered. You see, you have a hope-filled and a hope-fueled joy by the Spirit. Hear God's word. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. Through him we have obtained access into grace in which we currently stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
You have not seen him, but you love him. And now believe and rejoice with joy inexpressible, filled with glory. You see, this strange paradox is shown so clearly on the cross. That instrument of great suffering, the most horrific event in human history, has become for us the source of our greatest joy, something we speak on week in and week out, that we will delight in this morning, that we will sing about, the promise that our relationship to Christ, because of that cross, will never be severed, that he will never leave us or forsake us because he was forsaken by the Father for us. That joy that has gone before to prepare a place for us so that no matter what happens in this life, our future is known and solid and secure. That joy is placed for us in the midst of the passion and suffering of our Lord. And the joy it gives to us is in the midst of the suffering and the death of this life. The joy that it gives to us is in the same suffering of this life that our, Christ, our, our Lord experienced. And knowing then this rejoicing God who loves to receive sinners, who loves them so much that he sends his son to die for them and then seeks them like a shepherd and then runs to them like a waiting father and then rejoices over them with shouts of joy, like someone who is shameless concerning his love for another. It is knowing this God that will grant us joy, even in the midst of the hardships of this life. Seeing and knowing that this joyful God is for us and not against us, even though we can't always read what he's doing by the circumstances that we're living. That will lead to the fruit of joy in us. It's not going to come from trying to gin it up or grunt it out on a Monday morning. Or repeating the mantra, be joyful. But it is real joy. Strong enough to endure persecution and suffering and trials, even death itself. As the history of the church has shown forth. And in fact, your sorrows, brother and sisters, brothers and sisters, oddly aid your joy. You see, the pains of this life are reminders that ultimate joy will not be found here can't be found here. Not in these things. These things that are good, given, worthwhile, are not ultimate. Our joy must be beyond the walls of this world. You see, God won't allow his children to be duped by a false joy that disappoints. And so he uses disappointments in order to lift our heads up to see the one seated at his right hand with pleasures forevermore. His joy will be on full display when our joy is made full in his presence. And may that future joy, though hidden at times in the midst of our suffering, be what carries us forward to a hope that is sure. Let's pray.